0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. As everyone knows, this is a... uh... A Village Global Masterclass, our first, actually. So oh, okay. We're starting with a very high bar to bring together a set of, of uh, founders and leaders in our portfolio with uh, some of the Valley's best execs and operators to have an intimate discussion about how to build uh, amazing companies. Let's start, John, with a phrase that I uh, most associate with you, um, which is servant leadership. And I'd love if you could describe your philosophy on servant leadership and especially try to contextualize it for, for much smaller organizations What does it mean to be a servant leader as a CEO? We have a bunch of CEOs around the table.
1: How should they think about how that philosophy can inform the way they they grow their business? Mm -hmm. So when I talk about servant leadership, it's it's frankly the 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 way I learned to lead because I actually learned to lead in a partnership at Bain, where you aren't really empowered to do anything. You have to you have to earn the respect and the followership of others. You guys don't have that as founders. But I do think you'll find that many of the best leaders exhibit the, the principles of servant leadership. And I just say, it's how do I serve, serve the purpose of the organization, serve the customers, serve the employees, serve the communities in which we operate. You know, Jim Collins called it level five leadership. Other people call it different things, but it's when someone, it's not about the leader. It's about what it is we are trying to accomplish. Right. And it's somewhat the antithesis of what's hot in Silicon Valley at different times. The narrative's always around the all-powerful founder, the all-powerful leader. And I think there's actually very few examples where that actually great sustainable companies come out of that. My leadership role model for large parts of my career was Phil Jackson of the Chicago Bulls. Now it would be a Steve Kerr for those of you that are younger. And what always struck me he was able to do is get people who actually were better than he was to play together. He got Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, Dennis Rodman, a cast of characters to win Six championships. He got Shaq and Kobe to play together. You look at, you look at Steve Kerr and the Warriors right now. He's getting, somehow he's getting Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Kevin Durant, and Draymond Green to all buy into something greater. And they win. I, I view it with how do you build high performance teams of top talent to win? And servant leadership is part of it. The one final thing I'll say, think of your own career. Did you ever really want to work for someone that had to be smarter than you all the time? Because my experience is top, top talent doesn't want to work for someone that's competing with them. So even if you're a CEO? Even if you're CEO. I
0: mean, especially if you're CEO. So how does that play out? Give us a, maybe a concrete example, ServiceNow or eBay, where you assembled, I don't want to use the frame, "team of rivals" because it's not in that sense, but it's a bunch of really smart, high-performance people who all think they're A-plus players. And you've described yourself as sitting at the bottom of the organization. You, you mm-hmm. always have said, you know, flip the org chart. The CEO is at the bottom serving everyone above him or her. How does that play out in practice as you try to make key strategy decisions or product decisions if you're in service of all
1: of these amazing people you've brought around the table? Well, I think you have to ask the question, why are we here? That starts with purpose. I mean, I think every company's got to ask, answer the why, the what, and the how questions. The why questions are, why are we here? Why should I want to work here? Why should I care? And that's about purpose. And you want people to be there because of purpose. If they're there for stock price, if they're there for themselves, if they're there for other reasons, it's not going to last. And where purpose really is important is during the tough times, right? It's it's during the, the, the bonding, the formation times, which often are the challenging times. The what questions are the strategy questions, right? What products and services do we sell? What customer segments do we target? What business model do we have? And that has to be driven outside in. That has to be driven, and a leader and a leadership team we have to figure that out. And then the how questions are the, the culture. How will we execute? How will we behave? How will we treat one another? And so, again, you think of a high-performance sports team, it's not that dissimilar in a high-performance business, where we got to be highly aligned on the purpose and why we're here, right? And we have to have commonality to that, even if we have very different backgrounds, very different perspectives. Then we need to take what is a bunch of high-performing individuals and get clarity about what we're going to do because we have to be aligned on what we're going to do. And that's, that's at the end of the day, it's not a consensus vote, but it is. everyone gets to have input, but then we have to align as a team. And then the how, you know, high-performance teams execute better than others. You know, it's not a coincidence that the Amazon senior team has been together for a long time. The Apple senior team has been together for a long time. The Facebook senior team has been together for a long time. The Google senior team has been together for a long time that high-performance teams act as a team and execute together. And you hear on all four of those examples, you always hear most organizations look at the senior leadership team, and they don't see a team. They see a collection of individuals. Those four companies, people look at their senior teams, and they think they're a team. And so the power of a senior team being a team is profound. And So what and, do
0: you do as CEO if you're trying to get your head of product and head of engineering and head of marketing to work well together as a team and bring them together. What do you
1: what are do you doing so as a leader I, I so start part? with I start with I start with a couple things. No, by the way, I'm giving all these answers as though they're easy. None of this is easy. If it were easy, anyone could do it. And we wouldn't need you, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, I start with I did this, so I joined ServiceNow. I have two or three people that have been here for years, I have two or three people that got here a year ahead of me, and I have three people I've brought in, right? A highly successful company. So I take them off site. I said, what are your individual, asp- what are your aspirations for us as a company, for us as a team, and for you personally? And we share that. And of course, what happens is when you do that, you actually find that aspirations, when you talk about an aspirational level, they overlap a lot. People start realizing, wait, we're more similar than we are dissimilar. Then we get clarity. What do we need to accomplish to be successful? Right? Again, this is the whole the why, the what, and the how. What do we need to accomplish? And we get agreement on what we need to accomplish. And it's shared agreement over our priorities. If you were to see up in my um, in my office, I've written priorities by person and for the company on one sheet of paper. And I said, do we agree that these are the priorities? And so everyone sees their own personal priorities and then their own collective priorities. And we can change those over time, but we're going to change them transparently. And then how? In our case, so many of those priorities are cross-functional priorities. Mm. So no one person can be uh, accomplish their goals alone. And so what my team did is they formed a social contract with one another because they realized we have to execute together. And if you were to go up to an, in our office, my office space, the social contracts on the wall, and it's such things like we will operate east-west, which means they're not going to come to me for every decision they agree that on many of these decisions, they're going to reach out to each other first, try to work them through and involve me where they need to. We're going to um, debate like we're right, listen like we're wrong, debate, decide and commit once we've decided. And so so that team and I let them write them, in fact, encourage them, force them to write them. And then, you know, the longer I've gone on in my career, the less tolerant I am of high performing people that don't operate as a team. Do you think going back to the
0: eBay days, you said when you took over at eBay and began the turnaround, you had to replace 80 of the top 100 leaders of the company. Mm-hmm. What did those leaders lack? What were you looking for in that moment? And was it this teamwork orientation or something else? Just
1: no, conference? no. That, that, I, I think there's the right person at the right time in the right role. And that, that varies over time. It gets a little bit of your, your scaling question. So the the situation at eBay, the dilemma was... Most the people there had been experienced white hot success in that company, and when you've had white hot success in a company, and the world begins to change, and that success is less, you secretly hope the past is coming back. It's human nature. I would experience people saying, "Hey, you should be so proud, John. We've changed 10% since last year. You know, we're 10% better than we were uh, last year. 15% better than we were last year." And then I'd have someone from the outside come in and say, guess what? We're 30% behind, but we closed half the gap. So if it's comparison against history, change feels really hard. If it's comparison versus customers, competitors, the outside world, that's the dimension you have. And so, so many of these people at eBay were well-intentioned, talented people, but because they had experienced success doing one thing, the world changed relatively rapidly. The change was too much. Ironically, several of them went to Google and other places that were beginning to go through their change process and they led change there because they had a fresh outside in perspective. So I think you need a balance. You need a balance of, of people who have the history, have the knowledge, but also then a balance of people, especially when the world's changing so fast that had that kind of outside in freshness. So I want to come back to the, the, the why, what, how framework in a second. But since we're on
0: the eBay topic, you know, one of the things that all of us as founders and early stage CEOs have to deal with is, moments of peril and pivots and 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 having to confront some very uncomfortable reality sometime simultaneously we're projecting out to our investors and our customers and our employees that everything's great and we're crushing it and all that kind of stuff and managing the psychology of that is really difficult you've described some hair you know some days at ebay where you said the most important thing you could do is confront reality and label it accurately to create a shared understanding of what actually is happening. And then from there, implementing strategies to improve it. How do you, what advice do you have for us on how to confront reality <laughs> and call it what it is, while also projecting hope as a leader and keeping the troops fired up that they can actually turn the corner?
1: Mm-hmm. I have learned and feel over time one of the most important things I can do is to take care of myself and on dealing with adversity it starts with me and here's here's a lesson i've had to learn just take for a minute think for a minute of a point in your career that in hindsight you are most proud of you feel proud of and a point where you grew the most as a leader as an entrepreneur as a person just think about a period in your career and now think about a period in your personal lives where you grew the most as a human being that you're most proud of in hindsight for how many of you was that when things were going really, really well in your professional or personal life? For how many of you was that a period of adversity? Yeah, me too. Here's what I've had to figure out. You know, I spent my life saying I want to avoid adversity. I want things to be good. And yet in hindsight, the, parts, the moments I'm most proud of are the moments of adversity. And so adversity never feels fun. Right? I, I can't tell you I want adversity. I don't seek adversity but I'm no longer scared of adversity. And I know adversity is a reality of business and it's a reality of life. And so when adversity emerges, instead of trying to run from it, hide from it, wish it weren't there, which you all secretly all wish it wasn't there, I now accept that it is a reality. And I say, well, at least I'm going to learn and grow. And I think it starts with the leader having to say, having the objectivity to say, we're confronting adversity now. This is working or this isn't working. The external environment's changed. In your personal life, it can be your health or something else. But uh, And it's your own psychology of being able to recognize it, not panicking, understanding that that great businesses come through ebbs and flows. All the companies I've just talked about have had their ups and downs. And you know think of an Amazon, they've been hero, zero, hero, zero, hero, zero. That's partly what gives them their resilience, actually, and their execution ability. So I think confronting adversity, it's never more important for a leader to be grounded, because if you're scared, or if you're trying to spin something, everyone's going to see it, right? Because they're scared. Then confronting reality, it I it, it had to confront reality, because if you don't label the reality, no one else, everyone sees the world differently. So for instance at eBay I said we are in 2008 we are in a turnaround. Now everyone knew it was true but no one wanted to use that word. And our customers hated it, our employees hated it, investors hated it, the media loved it. Everyone knew it was true and by labeling it then all of a sudden the focus could be all right now what are we going to do about it? There's no longer denial about what's really going on. It's a reality. So once I put it out there, and we got through that shock and that period of the first three, four months where it was going, it's like okay, you know, he's probably right. All right, now we're at least confronting reality. So what are we going to do about it? And and it, it's sort of like it begins to create a cycle. Then then the focus is on okay, what are we going to do about it? So, mm-hmm. I, and I think there's a way of doing it that doesn't that doesn't make you lose hope. That, yeah. That how confront- do you balance the positivity because it are you know. You're labeling reality.
0: It's a turnaround, for all, for all of us, it's we're almost out of money, or our one customer just canceled the contract, and we're not sure if we're going to make it. Um, or the term sheet we were about to sign, you know, was pulled. And you know, you got a team of twenty, thirty employees. As a CEO, is it full transparency all the time? And you're labeling reality of we're almost out of cash. We're screwed. Oh, yeah. you have to, and you're balancing it right.
1: And yeah, you have to you, use your own judgment. Yeah, but you've got to paint a picture. In eBay, it was, if we don't change our value proposition and change our pricing, our policies, so almost change almost everything, we're going to let down our community of users and we're going to not be, uh, reach our aspirations and our purpose. And so we have to embrace this change. There's going to be a period of uncertainty, but the possibility of what we can create is worth it. And some people are up for that fight and that transition and some people weren't. But it was very matter of fact, I communicated, I'm all in. I'm all in on this. And in usual, you know, my experience in organizations is around almost any given issue that involves change. You got roughly 20, 25% of the people that want to be part of the change. You got, no matter what the topic is, 25, 30% of the people that want to fight it, want to be naysayers, want to undermine it, want to do whatever. And you got the 50% of the people in the middle saying which side's going to (laughs) win. And I spent way too much time in my career trying to win everybody over. And then I'd overinvest in the naysayers, or I'd overinvest in the skeptics, thinking, oh, I can turn them around. What I've learned now is I don't. I focus on the 25% of the people I need to get on board, because then the 50 will follow that 25%. And the, by the way, the naysayers will be no, naysayers no matter what you do. You may say, turn left, and they're going to be saying, he should be saying, turn right. You say, turn right. No, he should be saying, turn left. And over time, you either, you either got to get rid of them, they leave, or they subtly flip over. But, but you'll never get rid of that, that voice. And so accepting that there's always going to be 25% of the top people on whatever given topic that are questioning or doubting and not allowing you to not distracting yourselves on that. You, you may have little periods like right now, life is good at service now. It, mm-hmm. That's a pretty quiet voice, but the minute anything gets choppy, yeah, those voices come out. So and it's part of our job to, to, Lead through it. I spend more time. Who are the culture carriers? Who are the leaders I need to have winning over? Who wants to be part of the future? Fantastic.
0: Let's let's go to a few of the topics that folks raise now, and we can open up. So if people want to jump in or or add two cents, feel free. Maybe Nancy, your your topic, and not just because you're right next to John, but it, I think it's a good good topic, which is hiring. Do you want to say again, sort of what's top of mind for you, and then John can riff. Yeah, when do you hire for someone that you want to train into the role, or when do you hire for someone who's
1: already done, has that experience? Yeah, so this is probably the single topic I spend the most time with founders on, including some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley, because the more successful you are, the more you're going to grow. And your job is to say, how do I put together the team that's preparing us for the next stage and the next stage and the next stage? And the faster you're growing, the more that's changing. And so if you're in a successful startup, the reality is you may have to upgrade or replace 20% of your team every year, and that's never going to stop. And that's brutally hard when this is the team that's gotten us to where we are, and this person's been such an important culture carrier, and yet we're scaling beyond his or her capabilities. I can sort of see it. And I think there's certain roles you can hire ahead of the curve on, and there are other roles it's hard to. So you can hire ahead of the curve with a CFO. That's almost always a good idea. You can hire ahead of the curve with a lawyer. That's almost always a good idea because they've seen the movie you're going to, and it's a place where you can bring maturity into your organization. You can hire a little bit ahead of the curve on a CHRO. I think that's one of the most important. Now, you hire too far ahead of the curve, they culturally they miss. You know, someone that's that's been a CHRO of a ten thousand person organization is not going to be a good one for a hundred person organization, right? I think some of the functional roles you can hire a little bit ahead of the curve on and you should. Engineering, there are people that are great in engineering, uh, running an engineering organization of 50 people or less. They're great at 500 people or less. They're great at 5,000 or less. They tend to be different people. You can't hire two head of the curve, but you just got to be constantly watching. I think the same as product development, the same with marketing, the same with design. And so as a balance. You know, I just, you got to think about it as a portfolio and the hardest things are saying the person you feel really, really loyal to, really appreciative of everything they've done, just knowing that you've got to hire, you know, you've got to upgrade certain roles. I can't think of any time in my career where I've said I moved too fast on this person.
0: And do you ever invest in those people?
1: Sure. I invest in all people, but I'm really clear eyed about where I think they can grow and where I'm willing to take a chance on them growing and where they can't. It's a skill to develop, learning how to ask someone to lead. And I have fired so many people in my career. And when I say fired, remember, I grew up at Bain. For every 10 people we hired, we managed half out within two years. We managed 75% out within five. And yet people that managed out, there's an incredibly loyal alumni base. And remember, most of these people didn't opt-out. Most of these people were we told them you aren't going to the next level here. So I, I learned there. And you can't be afraid of that conversation. So I'm going to have this conversation with you. If I have to, when I when I was going to tell, even to this day, when I'm going to fire someone or the fire, I'm going to ask them to leave, I will role-play the conversation with my CHRO. But typically the conversation is something like this. And my goal is to be clear on the part I have to play. And then to not have it drain my emotional energy, because it will. So, Ben, I want you to know I've made a decision to make a change. And I've I've made this decision. It's not about what you've done today. It's about my belief on what I need, what we need. And so I'm going to make this change. Now, I'm not going to give you the chance to talk. (laughs) <laughs> because in a minute, you're going to go talk to the CHRO about this. But what I'm going to offer you is we're going to, I'm going to treat you very well on the way out. I'm going to help be a reference for you. And I'm going to be, hopefully, a lifelong supporter of yours. And I'm not going to change my mind on this decision. I don't think it makes any sense for us to spend lots of time about the history because it's not about the past. I love you to death. But... I've got to do what's right for the organization, at least what I think is right for the organization. You may agree or disagree, but in this case, I've made a decision. Now, you're going to talk to Mary, our CHRO here, in a minute. She's going to talk about how we're going to handle your financial arrangements, communications. We're going to do this with dignity. And I will want to talk to you again in a couple of days once you've had a chance to internalize this. So what I've done is saying, I love you to death. It's not about you. I don't want to get in debate about history, about whether... Because I've made the decision, I'm going to let you process the grief and emotion with someone else, not with me, because I don't, I can't afford the emotional energy and the emotional drain, and I'm going to treat you well. Now, and if you check my ref, my reputation in Silicon Valley, I do treat, I mean, there are an awful lot of people that I still do references for that I've had to leave, I've had that conversation Well, with. The, the phrase I liked the most in that role play was, it's not about what you've done to
0: date, it's about what you might be able to do going forward. Yeah. Because then you get you avoid the yeah. let's relitigate the project from a year it's, ago. That
1: yeah. it's not, and there are there are many many people who've been extraordinarily successful alumni of eBay, PayPal, Bain that have had that conversation with and gone on to do great things. Lewis, how does that plan? often people are relieved? The people that know they aren't performing, they're actually their egos hurt, and they got to go through the grief process, but they're sort of relieved.
0: Yeah, I'm curious at what point you. Like, you make that decision to stop trying to, like, improve them to fit the role they're in or they need to be and and then decide to, like, let them go. Because obviously, like, you'll often see situations where people aren't performing as well as you want and you can just fix it by training them or anything like that. I'm curious, like, at what point you decide to stop doing that.
1: It goes back to what we are talking about a minute ago. I view it as a portfolio. I have a team. And so I can afford on my team at any given time investing in a few people on the hope they'll grow. And yet, if I'm doing that in everyone, that tells me that something's wrong. So I, I, I sort of have the mindset of I'm upgrading 20% of my team every year. And so that, that, and I have a little bit of a sense of who I think will top out when I'm trying to invest as hard as I can in all of them so that that doesn't happen, but I'm also confronting my reality of wait a minute, where can I upgrade? And I don't mean upgrade in a judgmental sense, where because my job, if I don't do it, I'm holding the team back. So I think of myself as, again, I'll use a sports analogy. I'm the sports coach. I gotta pick who the starters are. I gotta choose who plays. And at some point you got to put the best players on the field. Now you can't swap everyone out all at once. You have chaos. And it's not that I'm I'm committed to investing in everyone along the way, but they're just at some point it's my job to get the best players on the team, on the playing field. So I'm pushing myself. Who are the couple people I'm going to upgrade this year? Yeah. And I even try. I wouldn't use the word upgrade in front of them, but who? Where are the places where I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make a move to stay ahead of the game?
0: So upgrade means like replacing them with someone else.
1: Yeah. Hey
0: Sean. You ask somebody to leave. How much time do you tend to give them in that transition? especially if you want to give them a
1: dignified exit. There may be a big company, small company force at play in my answer because I'm going to give a big company answer. Typically, I try to make it so they they have a chance to have the decision communicated as theirs. This is someone who's not being fired for cause or is not a, you know. And so typically um, what the typical cycle is, I want you to think about this for a few days. i want to talk to you again. And then let's agree, if you are willing to play ball on this, then let's agree on a timing for you to communicate your decision to leave, which almost always starts far and gets moved up. They move it up. And so the, the psychology is that they feel like they don't want to announce it. They're, the fear is humiliation, usually. That's almost a bigger fear than actually leaving the company. And so once they work through it, Often by the time they come back to me, if my CRTRO's done the job, they said, you know, I've accepted your decision I'm, and I'm going to announce to my team next week. And I try, we try to pull it in once they've gone through that cycle. If we communicate the next week too early, they panic. So allowing it and then it'll almost always move up. And then I have a latitude that it may be harder in a startup because I, I treat them well financially. You know, that, that, that not ridiculously, stupidly, but, but in a way that they feel like, you know what, I was somewhat fairly treated. And then the other thing that's, that, that you remind them, and then my CHRL reminds them, references, good, bad, or indifferent, you will be references for your direct reports for a long time. Not because they gave you your name, but because the world's a small place. So I can't tell you how many former eBay and PayPal people I still get reference calls on. They didn't give my name. So many do, but even the ones that don't, right? You know, when you hire someone, you try to find references and they give you some names, but you try to find, oh, this person worked for this person who did. And so you just remind them, I want to be a good reference. I'm also a freak about every person's accountable to develop their own capabilities. I role model developing my own capabilities. I invest in myself a lot. I, I I want to be world-class at what I do. You don't get to be world-class. It's not a born trait. You have to invest in yourself. World-class athletes invest in themselves. World-class athletes understand their strengths and understand their weaknesses. World-class athletes consume coaching as a sign of strength, not as a sign of vulnerability and weakness. So I talk about this. I did this with my global leadership team. And I said, first of all, I, I walked into this, I, I walked into this organization. I'm a three-time CEO of blah blah blah. The board had never done a review for for the CEO. I said, I want the I want you guys to do a review for me. But I want you the board to in, I want you to interview all of my direct reports and do a 360. To my direct reports, I want you to tell them where you think I can get better. And I want the board to sit down with me and give me a, a review. I then, with all my direct reports, asked them to write a self-assessment to me, one pager, two pager. What do you think went well last year? What could have gone better? I collected upward feedback on all of them. What do you think this person can, three things they should start, three things should stop, three things should continue. And then I had a performance conversation with each of them where we agreed, here's what went well, here's what could have gone well, but most importantly, here are your developmental priorities. Do we agree that you want to grow and develop in these three things? And I'm holding you accountable to develop yourself. It's not my job because no one will care about your career as much as you do. I will support you in that because the top, my, my experience is, the number one characteristic of top-performing people is they continuously learn and grow. Well, And John, that's why all of our the CEOs here have taken time out of their busy days, yeah. traveled the distance to
0: come to learn from you and why we're yeah. all grateful. The, the nugget that I take from that is the value of sharing with our teams when we get back to the office about the learning and the investment itself that we've done in the middle of the yeah. week to
1: learn from John to model what the self-improvement behavior. Think about how powerful it is. You guys are the founders. You are the god and goddesses of your companies. Right. Right. You can do no wrong through the eyes of many of your employees for you to say, you know what? I'm working so hard to make sure I'm investing in myself to stay ahead of the curve. Here's what I'm doing. By the way, I expect all of you to be doing the same in your own respective ways. Because then by the time you make a move on someone, they've had a chance to invest in themselves. You've tried to invest in them, but it's not like it's too late. So I make that a condition. And I'll say it in a, in, a, in a company-wide all hands. I've said it many times. You know, We have 7,000 people here. Um, we used to do it with 40,000 on eBay. No one cares about your career more than you. I'm not responsible for your career. You are responsible for your career. I can help support you. So, so that, that sort of mindset, I think, is... And that's the mindset of a winner, too. Let's shift.
0: And, and I want to pick up on Kasser and Sean's themes around enterprise. Uh, enterprise brands. Can, can you guys each sort of restate your sort of question or topic of mine and we can talk a little bit about the ServiceNow industry and enterprise? Yeah, software. I think uh, you've touched on some
1: of these things, but uh, recruiting for a non consumer brand, I think it's different when you're ServiceNow than, than a really small company, but I think these two share similar, similar issues.
0: How do you think about design and branding as an enterprise software company? not especially sexy company relative to other. At least one is the historical tint that design doesn't matter, brand doesn't matter. You know, you're doing enterprise sales, none of this matters. I I mean, ServiceNow has recently done a whole lot of branding efforts. I'm curious on on rationale.
1: So one is, first of all, I'm, I'm very cautious of labels. I was a consultant for the first 20 years of my career and somehow overcame the genetic flaw of being a consultant to become a CEO of a consumer company. And now I'm an enterprise guy. I'm the same person. So the labels are a little overdone by, and I just keep that in mind because we're never as good or as bad as made labels make us out to be. I had to learn at eBay. I was in a consumer company, but couldn't compete against Facebook, couldn't compete against Google at the time, couldn't compete. And so I had to identify what I needed and where I could find those pockets. So for instance, at eBay, we spent no time in the beginning trying to recruit kids off campus because the kids off campus want to go to the hot stuff, by and large, but found a sweet spot in people who were 30 and had been through three failed startups in the first part of their career. Because for every one that joined Facebook, there were nine that joined startups that didn't make it. And after their third one, the dream seemed a little less exciting. And they were looking for a place that had purpose, that was going to last and endure, where they could learn and grow and build their careers. And in that case, in some cases, they also were learning, uh, they were at stages of life where they had started a family, where their, their aspirations were a little bit different. So we got some people that were rock stars, were rock stars when they were 22, but were, where life didn't work out perfectly in the first eight years of their career. And so at 30, They thought it was awesome to be joining a stable company called eBay, where they had a chance to have a real impact and be around high-quality people that had a commitment in them and that they could count on. And so a large part of the eBay turnaround was driven by that group. Then I complemented that by making several acquisitions and at one point had 25 founders working for the company. They were driving the disruptive innovation. So the blend was here. I came in. CJ Desire, chief product officer, came in and said, "What the frick are we doing? Trying to pull ad engineers here? You know, we're we're not getting a level engineers here. Not that we don't get a few. So if you look at where we're increasing our engineering headcount, it's in San Diego where we have a large group. It's in Seattle where we have a large group. We just opened a development center in Chicago. We have a development center in Hyderabad. Now, product people, you can get some here, but it's it's very it's sort of looking realistically." About where can we compete for what types of people? And then the other thing I would say is, and you guys already do this, there's a little bit of a self selection process that sort of like, well, what turns someone on? There are certain people that just want to be with a hot company. Great, go for it. There are talented people that want to be in purpose driven organizations, or there are talented people that want to learn from good mentors or bosses or people that invest in their careers. There are people that care about the mission of the company. And so don't compromise on those things a little bit. And I I don't apologize that we're not Google here or we're not PayPal. I'm still chair of PayPal. You can have as much impact here as you can in a consumer brand. You just haven't, the brand isn't as well known. So find your sweet spot. The reason we're going to open a development center in Chicago is that the big 10 schools all have great engineering schools. Michigan, Michigan State, Illinois, where our founder, or Indiana, where our founder at Illinois, where our. And a lot of those Midwest engineers don't want to really move to Silicon Valley. They want to stay in the Midwest because an awful lot of them grew up there. I saw this at Braintree. At PayPal, we bought Braintree. It's a much less competitive market for engineers. We're already getting people. And now on campus, we're cool. <laughs> Go figure. You know, at Stanford, no one's heard of us. At, at, at University of Illinois, actually, no, we're concerned. Is that your
0: alma mater, you
1: know, No, your size, you may say, that's great. I can't afford to have free development centers. But but just so fine. We already you, have
0: a Detroit office. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah fine. There.
1: Yeah. So you know you can get in Detroit. You're, it's awesome, right? And there are good people. Every good engineer in the world didn't go to Stanford and isn't living in Silicon Valley, as it turns out. On design and brand, my predecessors here didn't believe in brand whatsoever. So we spent zero dollars in brand. One hundred percent of the dollars in sales and marketing. Marketing being very, enterprise-y, product oriented. Great, it's worked. But for us to achieve our aspirations, people have to have heard of what we are, even if it's not our decision makers. Actually, most decision makers know who we are, but recruits don't. At some point, people want to work for a company that their mother's heard of. And at some point in our case, the C-suite's got at least to have heard of who we are. So I believe it's reasonably important. I brought over, I hired my chief communication brand officer at eBay from Nike. He worked with me for a decade, Alan Marks, and I brought him over here and so we've relaunched our purpose we've relaunched our brand identity we're making it far more around an element of humanity in it i work very hard not to speak enterpriseese if you ever watch me on cnbc or watch me in any public setting if i'm speaking enterprise or it call me because i'm trying to use real language that describes who we are and what we are now i'm not selling you know down to a decision maker inside of it so you you need both but but i think that ability to communicate why are we here what are we doing in plain language is a good challenge and then design we've we've gone from maybe 20 designers to over 100 in the last year i mean i put a huge focus on it and turns out designers just want to have impact and they can have more impact here than they can i don't know what a designer does at google right now or what they do at facebook or what they do it's done right? So they're the, the 577th designer joining a team of people that's been there forever That in an organization that's actually not going to change their design very much. As we're here, they're going to have a huge impact. That was the other way I got a lot of people at eBay, which was people want to have impact. And when you have to change something or grow it for the first time, that's a huge opportunity to have impact. And so you ask them in an interview question, do you like to have impact or you just like to join things where you're a cog in a machine?
0: <laughs>
1: do Just change, Do
0: you want to change the world? Just asking. Water?
1: I mean, uh, Rachel, you had a
0: comment or uh, theme on enterprise.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of relates. The question was on value prop, communicating value prop, probably ties in closely to brand. But I thought what was interesting about ServiceNow is that you have stacking sort of concepts that maybe aren't complex to the IT manager who's going to use the tools, but the people around it may not uh, have those multiple concepts top of mind, which makes value prop communication. Part, and I think that's a common enterprise problem. Uh, so I'm curious how you think about it and what's what some of the advice is there for those of us tackling similar problems. I'm still a reasonable, you know, neophyte to the industry. My observation are they different personas sure. and you need to some extent to be clear what role each persona plays and what you need to be communicating. So Most of our product is bought at CIO or CIO minus one today. It used to be CIO minus three. And so you need to, the sales team needs to be able to communicate in their language to have them get the decision to buy, And that has a fair amount of IT language in it. The C-suite's increasingly a persona that we've never paid any attention to. And it's one that I'm particularly focused on. And I have to use a different vocabulary and a different way of speaking to describe our value prop to the C-suite. Now, I'm not closing deals. A C-suite's an influencer. So we, we need both. And so, you know, I think it's just being clear what's our messaging by grouping of persona. And then, you know, this may vary by different enterprise company, but by and large, most employees of companies don't give a shit about the enterprise brands. They just aren't that, you know, so, so um, we get in this debate internally. Well, we don't put our brand front and center on our product. And actually what we do is we enable better employee experiences. Well, employees don't want They want the brand of their own company on the mobile app or the portal that we're helping create, not our brand. No one says, Oh, great. I get to deal with Oracle again. And so I also think there's a certain humility we need to have in enterprise. It's different than consumer. Now, we need a strong brand among IT decision makers, but that doesn't mean our user experience should be screaming our brand. It's really interesting. So you think about brand in terms of how you communicate to the C-suite, and you spoke earlier about how you're thinking about brands in terms of hiring and people wanting to know the brand and find that it's something they can be proud of. Uh, you're talking about brand as it's perceived by the users within the company and identifying with that as part of their company. So I think your answer is really, really segment that out. And then, yeah. you know, the website, does that speak to sort of that hiring brand? We've had we redid our website because you go to the talent section of our website versus the 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 customer section of our website. You'll see it's, it's got to be common enough. There's got to be a common architecture. But the the you know, you're we're not talking about orchestration and you know, a bunch of ITEs in the talent section of the website. So yeah, I think you have to adapt it to different constituencies let's shift topics if we can john when you were you
0: mentioned at ebay you bought lots of companies in fact we once met i think you're doing the brain tree acquisition you just mm-hmm. got off a call doing that deal you've done bd deals with countless uh, numbers of, of companies for all the startups here today when they're thinking about doing a deal with a big company like ServiceNow or being acquired uh, by ServiceNow service or an ebay How do you think about that? And what advice would you give to founders when they get calls from big co's who are curious to learn more? Maybe there's an acquisition. Maybe it's just for intelligence. Maybe there's a partnership opportunity. What do you see founders screw up most often when
1: interfacing with, with a big company execs? Let's say, what do I see people screw up? That doesn't provoke a ton specific. I I would say in general for every 10 hours of BD conversations, eight of Mar waste. And I've made that mistake over and over and over. And that's true. It's true with the big companies as a small company because people can talk and meet forever. Very, 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 very few BD conversations produce a whole lot. Alliances, deals, they're compelling. Conceptually, they're really hard to do. So my advice there is to be triage- Honestly, and quickly, does this really have potential? Is there a real win-win here? If both sides can't recognize the win-win relatively quickly, move on to the next one. Because it probably won't happen. Hope is not a strategy. And but that's this big truth of the big company. I, I wish someone would want to, you know, I wish right now, best friends, I wish we would be doing more together. They view us as partly competitive. So that ain't going to happen. I can wish it all I want doesn't mean we're competing, but it does mean that so I, w- I would just be thoughtful and use your boards, use your investors, force people to make you talk through. So what did they say? what did you say? and be careful about over investing, which is not to say you won't have a few that are really valuable, but spend more time on a few things. You know then in MA you guys have the choice to you have the choice to choose by and large in most cases, you know you and your investors. And I can tell you on the other side of the equation, when I was at eBay and what I do here, what I look for is I look for a founder that wants to achieve their dream at scale. So whether it was Bill Reedy at at Braintree or whether it was Jack Abraham at Milo or whether it was when a founder is saying, well, I'm trying to sell the company or open to selling the company and I get a sense they want to monetize and move on to the next thing. That's fine. I just don't pay any attention. That'll be some bidding situation. When someone says they can articulate the synergies better than I can, they can say, man, you know, Bill Reedy really cared about payments. He's the CEO of, was the CEO of Braintree. And he wanted to, he he just said, we can do so much more at scale with PayPal than we can on our own. And then he had to get confident that we were going to leverage his platform, leverage his skills. That made that acquisition a lot easier. Now Bill, Bill's the chief operating officer. Of PayPal, Gary Marino of Bill Me Later was the same thing. Jack Abraham stayed for a couple, you know, for for four years. And I usually ask for a four year commitment to say. And so you you just got to decide. You may be in a situation where your investors are telling you you got to sell. This offer's too good, and you're moving on to the next thing. That's your choice. That's fine. As a buyer, I'm always suspicious of those things. It better be a technology I can tuck in quickly, and I don't need the people. On the other hand, you know, many of you, you know, odds are you're not going to build the scale. You're going to fit in somewhere. Right. But you may build a really valuable insight that is part of another ecosystem will scale your insight about how to do same day delivery will scale. And so focus on building, and building and building it. And then a potential acquirer. I'm just picking on your, you know, almost any commerce business here. There's been no new e-commerce businesses in the last decade, basically, that have gotten scale, have gotten escape velocity. So you then say, well, is there a place where I can achieve my ambition at even a greater scale, and, and leverage my insight, my, my my insight, my 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 dream? And those are the ones I pay, I you know, I'd, I'd pay more attention to. But you get the choice. I mean, you know, that's a great thing about being a founder. Use your board on MA. And use your board, you use a board member on deals on m a if you 've got a good trusted board member, they can help save you time too, and absorb some of the emotional energy some of the emotional ups and downs they will feel less of the emotional ups and downs, so part of the job of a leader is how do I not have my emotional energy consumed by things that don 't help me be successful, whether it 's asking someone to leave whether it 's a, a an M and A combination, and so I try to find sources of help on those issues, both internally and externally. I never negotiated; I'm a terrible negotiator. So my CFO did all the Bob Swan did all the negotiation. He loved the back and the forth. The, you know, uh, uh, that's a waste of my emotional energy. I'm not. I, I did the trust thing, right? And then he negotiated the price. On, uh, you, know, you coach a bunch of founders over, over the, the growth of their companies. What's a counter to the counterintuitive piece of advice you, you find yourself giving kind of consistently as, as you've seen these companies grow? I mean, it, it's a derivative of what we're talking about with Nancy's first question. You are being forced to grow. The thing about being in the number one role and the thing of, particularly about being a founder is you're in the frying pan every moment. And you're being forced to grow and scale and learn. And the pattern sets and things you are privy to, whether it's a board meeting, whether it's dealing with other founders, whether it's dealing with the situation, you get to see all parts of the business. And so your growth curve is like this. Often the growth curve you direct reports of people beneath you aren't will never be as high because they're not in that role. And so accepting that because at some point you're developing faster than your people. And that's a hard thing, especially when you've had a team that's helped you get to where you are today. And it's in that it's in that math that says will they really be able to scale and grow? So whether it was Brian at Airbnb or Evan down at Snapchat or, or Drew at Dropbox or Silverman at Ben at uh, you know Pinterest, it's it's like they're being forced to grow like that. And sometimes that growth, you know, Drew's been one that's been quite visible about that and talked about it, right? How his different phases where he had to almost reinvent himself, or reinvent himself as a leader, not as a not as a great engineer. But he's had to he's had to make change. Every one of them has had to make change underneath it. And that's a hard thing, especially when you had that initial founding group or that initial... But you're, you're learning and growing. And you don't feel the learning and growth. You're just like, you're feeling as inadequate as the next guy. I wanted to ask about the purpose stuff. Because in a small startup, you're always interacting with your whole team. And whenever they have down moments, you can kind of re- rejuvenate them with the purpose. And everybody gets aligned again and knows where they're going. How do you kind of scale that up to a to a big company? Because you you've you've talked about how how important that is. How do you keep it going as you grow into these bigger and bigger entities? And you know it's it's you've got to you've got to live it every day. You You've got to believe it and you got to live it. I've got to talk about our purpose. I got to believe our purpose. I make sure I, I in every meeting I'll say our job is to define the purpose, and ours is to make the world of work work better for people. World of works all around the future of work. I believe technology is going to change the future of work more in the next five years than in the last 30, right? Work better for people is a belief that it's technology and service of people and not the other way around. And that's particularly important for us because there's a great debate in automation right now. Is automation going to kill all the jobs or is automation going to improve the quality of our experience in our jobs? We make automation software. We have to be clear about where we come down to this. And our founder, much like Pierre Amidiar, is a big believer in technology and service of people. So what we automate is the 30, 40% of everyone's job that's repetitive, administrative, redundant. Going back. So it frees you up for the, for, to, to dedicate your creative energies and your creative best on 100% of your job, not on 60% of your job. I'm here because I am a big believer in that. I share regularly what I just said to you. And I say, that's why I'm here. I know why I'm here, how I relate to the purpose. But each one of you have to define how do you personally connect to the purpose. And each of us can connect in different ways, but you've got to have that. If you're here for the stock price, if you're because you want to be part of a hot company, mm, that won't last. So I just role-played that a little bit. But that's, yeah,
0: yeah. And I do believe
1: it. I've, and if, if, they, if I'm anything but authentic... If they, if they track talented people will only follow authentic people. You can have completely different styles. It doesn't, you don't have, there's no stereotype of a good leader. There's, you can have as many styles as there are people. But being authentic and defining how you connect in with that is, I think, a powerful motivator. For people. So let's close on, on this topic, John. We got to know each other
0: well during your transition between eBay and, and this gig mm-hmm. and bonded over, among other things, your 10 day retreat at Spirit Rock, in which you talked about the power of discovering your Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. I want to ask now that you're back in the throes of the public company CEO, are you able to maintain your connection to what that means to you, sort of emotionally and spiritually? And also, one of the things you, you set as a goal during your transition was to enjoy every moment. In your next chapter, are you enjoying most moments of this chapter of your, of your life? And how do you, how do you not lose sight of that
1: amidst being in the frying pan as all of us are as CEOs? It's an unfair. So the short answer is yes. And it's a little bit of an unfair question because things are going so well. So you don't really know until things are not going well. Right. And, and this first year, I feel enormously grateful to have joined this organization of having had the opportunity to help shape it at this stage of my life. I do gratitude practice driving into practice uh, to uh, work every morning. What I learned out of this Buddhist stuff is that your brain becomes more negative over time. It's proven in brain sciences. You know, they say your brain retains bad things and forgets good things. Think about if you step in the parking lot and almost get hit by a car, your brain says, don't ever do that again. Where if there's a beautiful sunset when you go out, nice sunset, but tomorrow your brain won't remember it. So over time, the Darwinian impact is your brain becomes more. What's also been proven in brain science is you can counteract that. You can actually make yourself, you can make yourself have a more positive attitude, you can make yourself have your brain be be happier, you can be more appreciative. And that that's what meditation is. And I, my current form of that is just doing gratitude practice. What am I grateful for? What what happened yesterday that I'm thinking, boy, I really appreciate that. And often it's the little things. So it can be a conversation that I didn't appreciate at the moment, but in reflecting, I really enjoyed that. Or what? It, so I'm I'm trying to do that kind of practice mm. and enjoy and, and accept that the adversity happens. My mother died in the middle of this. My you know sister got well, sister got breast cancer. You you have all sorts of different things. Kids go through their ups and downs, but. That that is trying to be present in the moment, you know, is, is the number one goal. And I, I also relate it to high performance now, too. I'm a big fan of uh, my current image is Steph Curry. Steph Curry plays with joy, right? Steph Curry plays the same joy if he's one for 10 as he does 10 for 10. He just looks like he loves being in the court. I feel like I spent my career playing more like LeBron or Kobe Bryant. We're going to win, and the more sacrifice, the better. A very Catholic orientation, right? And it's like, okay, that's fine, but how about we play with joy? you know? And, and so that's my current. The danger in a session like this, it sounds like I talk with such certainty like it's all clear. Nothing is clear in the middle of it. It's only clear in hindsight. So I'm trying to share this today in a turbocharged setting, but the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. and the older i get the more i've made friends with uncertainty not that i avoid uncertainty uncertainty is as present to me today as it was before i'm a little more comfortable with it now you know it's it's a it's a cathartic experience to be a leader it's a cathartic particularly cathartic experience to be a a, a founder And we feel like the image of leaders, the image of founders, you have to have all the answers. I've never felt like I've had all the answers. And at least I can be friends with that now, right? And accept that this is a journey. All those colloquialisms, life's a a journey, not a destination. It's true. And if I have done one thing reasonably well in my career, it's I reached out to others to get help. I've reached out to friends, I've reached out to coaches, I've reached out to therapists, I've reached out, I've had a personal board of directors at two or three different times in my career. YPO was a starting point of that for me at one point. And my experience is if you are struggling with someone and you call someone up and say, can I come pick your brain for half an hour on something and you genuinely share what it is you're grappling with, people will help and they'll love it no matter how busy they are. Well, and John, you've modeled that uh, example with us today uh,
0: by sharing your time and insights so generously. On on behalf of of Ross and Eric and Anne and all the partners at Village Global and all the founders and network leaders of the firm, thank you uh, for this wisdom. Uh, Made a huge impact.
1: Great. Good, guys. Well, thank you for coming.